28 and 29. And before I get started, I'm actually going to, yes, I am going to handle two chapters. And uh, I know that worries some of you. It's like, how long is it going to take to get <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, but before I get started, let me uh, just share this. this issue. Sometimes there are some messages that um, we need to use verbiage that might make people in church, especially maybe in kind of a Baptistic type of a church or maybe kind of a, a free church, words and verbiage and terminology that might make some of you very uncomfortable. And so there will be two terms that I'm going to use today, and I'll introduce you to one right now, but later on I'll, I'll introduce the other. But I'm just letting you know, this is by way of warning, there might be some language that might make some of you feel a bit uncomfortable. And uh, here it is, my the first word that I need, that we're going to use throughout the service today, is the word ritual. Ritual. Now, when I say the word ritual, many of you might be thinking of Catholic or Greek Orthodox or something like that. But ritual is critical. Ritual is not a bad term. We, we, I think many times in the Protestant church, we've run away from the idea of ritual. We, we are tr- striving so hard not to be Roman Catholic that we perhaps have run too far the other direction and have abandoned all ritual. But ritual is necessary in any community, whether it's a small community like a family or a slightly larger community like a church or a nation. We need ritual. It Ritual then express and preserve the deepest values of a society and continue to preserve the memory of those values even when society may have forgotten those values. It is, ritual is perhaps the glue that keeps or holds a society or a nation or a people or a family together. We need ritual. We do not need to be, we do not need ritualism whenever we add an ism to the end of the word. I think we run into value, but ritual is necessary. And in a church, ritual perhaps is the mortar that binds living stones together. So today we're going to deal with the topic of ritual. Now, as we prepare to look into the book of Numbers, chapter 28 and 29, let me um, just set up what, what's going on. The, the people of Israel have paused on their journey. They have been traveling from, the, uh, from Egypt, and it's taken them 40 years at chapter 28, They have paused. They are on the banks of the Jordan. They are in the plains of Moab, just east of the Jordan River. And they have paused. They have stopped. And um, they, um, they hear on the plains of Moab, they are going to be nourished in the truths of God. They are going to be reminded of their calling and Uh, as the chosen people of God. And God is going to teach them again who he is, who they are, and how they are going to live as the people of God in the land of promise. This is a people who has never lived a life, a sedentary life. They have never not been nomads. And God is going to Show them how do you live in the promised land. We'll get a glimpse of that today, but the book of Deuteronomy really um, explains that in greater detail. But we're going to see that today. They are going to um, um, learn who God is, who they are, and the, the driving means of reminding them or teaching them about their God and Savior is worship. Worship is going to be the vehicle, 
the means of teaching the people who they are and how to live in the promised land under the rule of a holy God. Worship is going to be the means by which they are formed as the people of God. It will be the means to communicate the truths of God. Worship is going to teach them about God. And one of the things that that we're going to see is that the remembrance of God is going to be interwoven through the daily and weekly, monthly and yearly calendar. Literally, God is going to weave himself into every aspect of their life. Their calendar is going to teach them about who God is. There is a rhythm through which God is going to feed and sustain his people. So that's just kind of setting things up. Let me just quickly give you a a brief preview as to our text today. What we're going to see is a lot of offerings, a lot of sacrifices. Offer this many bulls and this many lambs and this amount of oil and this amount of flour and just a lot of ritual. But I want us to understand that this is more than a list of boring, quote, boring, sacrificial procedures. Rather, the worship prescribed communicates to the people the nature of their Savior and who they are as a community. So these are not just haphazard, um, God just says, oh, just, I don't know, kill some bulls and some lambs and I don't know, if you got oil and wine, throw that in. That'd be awesome. This is a, through these procedures, through this protocol, through this worship, God is going to make himself known to his people. And he's going to do it every day, every week, every month, every year. Their calendar is consumed by God. I think there is a great need for us to be reminded of the truths of Numbers chapter 28 and 29. Some of the things that we need to recall, and I'll hopefully bring these out as we go through our text today, but one of the things we need to be reminded is that worship is by God's invitation. Worship is by God's invitation. He initiates worship. He is the one who calls us into his presence. What a privilege. What a great thing to remind ourselves of, that the God of the universe invites you and me to come into his presence and commune with him. Wow, what an awesome thing. The other thing we remember is that we approach God on his terms. We approach God on his terms. We do not have the freedom to be novel, to be new. God says, these are the terms by which I commune with my people. These are the terms by which my people commune with me. We, should, we would do well to listen to the terms that God has given by which we approach him. It is this God-ordained rhythm then that separates the people of God from their pagan neighbors, as we're going to see. Their pagan neighbors worshipped. It's not like Israel is the only people who are worshipping. Everybody worships. But the God-ordained rhythm of worship is what separates them from their pagan neighbors. They are not allowed to worship as their neighbors do. Their job is not to be relevant to their pagan neighbors. Their task is to approach God at his invitation by the means and the ways in which he has determined. And that is going to separate them from the culture around them. The other need that we have is we are going to see a life centered around the work of God. God is infused. That's one of the wonderful things. Sometimes we don't understand or we find it very foreign of all of the the separateness 
in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and we, we wonder why can't you mix two, two uh, pieces of material together? Why, when you weave a garment, must you have the same type of material? Why, can't you pl- why is it forbidden to plow with two different types of animals and all of the separateness? Because every aspect of the li- their life, from the clothes they wear to the field they plow to the calendar they keep, tells them that they are the distinct and separate people of the holy God. Everything they do reminds them of that. So, what I'm going to do today is just spend a few moments looking at the text. Um, and I'll highlight a few aspects of the text, and then we'll come through at the end and look at, uh, at some potential applications. But the first thing I want to do as we look at the text is just the big picture is that there is, is to, to let you know that there is a logical or perhaps better, a chronological ordering of the times of worship. As we go through our text today, we're going to see that there is a chronological um, ordering of times of worship in, in accordance with their frequency. So the first thing we're going to see is daily, this is how you worship me. Weekly, this is how I am to be approached. Monthly, this is how I am to be approached. Yearly, this is how you worship the God of the universe. And so daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, month by month, this is how I am approached by my people. So that's the first thing that we're going to see. And we're going to see that these rituals, the importance of ritual is that which binds the community together. Right? Ritual is, is important. And, and it, so the ritual of worship is that which binds the community, the, the people of God together. It is this what they hold in common and keep as sacred. The other thing that uh, stands out to us when, when, as we read along in these texts is the quantity of the sacrifices that are required. Now I didn't count them all up, but somebody did. Gordon Winham in his uh, commentary says that um, the yearly sacrifices were 113 bulls, 32 rams, 1,086 lambs, over a ton of flour, 1,000 bottles of oil and wine. Now this does not include one's personal um, offerings. This is just the offerings of the community. Now, we can bog down in the details and say, wow, that's a lot. I wonder why they had to do all the lot. Or what we can do is we can also look back, step back and say, the land that they are going to enter is going to be a fruitful land. God is going to resource for them what he commands. So they are not to offer these yet. These they get offered when they enter into the land. The land will be fruitful. The land will supply for them everything that they need to approach God. God will resource what he commands. So just with that as an overview, let's go ahead and look. And we'll just go daily, weekly, monthly, and then we'll look at the yearly festivals. And it begins with God saying, and you shall say, verse 3, well, I'll begin in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel and say to them, my offering, my food for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. The first thing I want to note there is note the repeated use of me and my. This is God's offering. Say to them, my offering, my food. You shall be careful to offer, be careful to offer to me at the appointed time. Again, novelty is not um, highly regarded here. And just so we don't understand, it talks about God, my food. This is not God saying that we are feeding the gods as many pagan religions do. God says in the says through the Psalms, he says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. 
The birds are mine. The birds of the field are mine. The beasts of the field are mine. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. If I needed something, I'll just take care of it myself. I do not need you to feed me. But these are a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Certainly reminds us then of how Paul describes Christ in Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We no longer offer bulls and goats as a pleasing aroma for Christ our Lord has been sacrificed a pleasing aroma to God, a pleasing fragrance to God Almighty. So we begin with this overview. You will come and you will offer these things to me. And then we see this in verse 3. Then you shall say to them, this is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs, a year old without blemish, day by day as a regular offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also a tenth of an ephah, a fine flour, a grain offering mixed with a quarter hen of beaten oil. It is a regular burnt offering. One of the things that stands out here that we should take note of is the mention of morning and evening. This is a daily offering, but morning and evening. And the words here take us straight back to Genesis. And there was morning and there was evening, a first day. And there was morning and there was evening, a second day. And there was morning and evening, a third day. This should remind us then and remind the people of God, it is a recalling of creation that God rules and provides for the needs of his human creation. It's interesting that God, morning and evening, he creates light. Morning and evening, he creates the sky. And morning and evening, he creates land. And morning and evening, then he creates um, various aspects. And you'll note that he creates man last. Now, the joke is that he created man last because if he created man first, man would have tried to help. And that's the humorous side of things. The theological and less humorous side of things is that God prepares, before he creates man, God has prepared every the environment for him. So that upon the creation of man, man has everything that he needs and it has been given to him by his creator morning and evening. You will recognize that I am creator and that I have supplied everything that you need. I have resourced what I have commanded. God provides for the need of his human creation. This is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And then down in verse 9, we see weekly offerings on the Sabbath day. Two male lambs, a year old without blemish, and two-tenths of an ephah, fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with oil, and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering every of every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. And so weekly we are reminded that God is our supply. And the Sabbath was a day of rest. And that it is a time where the people of God find rest in him and recharge and renew their souls and remind them that it is he who feeds us. It is God who supplies for us. It is God who nourishes us. And we rest in the fact that God has, is the one who nourishes and supplies our needs. That's the weekly Sabbath. When we get to verse 11, we see the monthly festival. At the beginning of your months, you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old without blemish, also three-tenths of an ephah, fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for each bull, and two-tenths of a a fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for the one ram, and a tenth of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering for every lamb, for a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, food offering to the Lord. Their drink offering shall be half a hen of wine for a bull, a third of a hen for a ram, and a quarter of a hen for a lamb. This is the burnt offering of each month throughout the months of the year. 
one, also one male goat for a sin offering to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. And now we have the monthly festival, the monthly time of worship. This is the m- new moon. And the new moon, basically, they see um, this cycle of God creating and sustaining. That is, it happens every month. God is sustaining what he has made. And then we look down to verse 16. And on the 14th day of the first month is the Lord's Passover. Now we get to the yearly times of worship. In Passover, not much detail is given. It is a family celebration. It is a time where the people, the families of the families gather together and recall that God is their deliverer. He is the one who frees us from bondage. And then immediately following Passover, um, the very next day is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It is seven days. So you have Passover on the 14th day of the first month, and on the 15th day of that month, you will now celebrate for seven days. And on the first day and the seventh day, it is a day of rest. It is a day, um, it is a Sabbath day. It is a day where we will do no work. And so we see here the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a time of remembrance that God has delivered his people from bondage and that they have cast out all the unleavened bread and they have turned away all that which represents sin from their lives. And certainly we see these parallels in the New Testament as the New Testament makes full use of the Passover imagery to explain the significance of the Lord's death. In fact, interestingly enough, Jesus calls his death his exodus. And Peter calls his death an exodus. He doesn't say, I'm going to die. I'm going to be delivered. It's my exodus. I'm going to be delivered. What an awesome way to put death. Instead of saying, well, he passed away or he went on. No, it was an exodus. He was delivered from bondage into true freedom. And then we also see that Christians are called to be as ruthless in expelling sin from their lives as the Jews were in eliminating leaven from their household. Cast out the leaven. Remove the leaven from your life that represents or signifies that which is contrary to the things of God. And so the yearly sacrifice, the yearly, on, on the first, on the 14th day of the first month, you had a Passover to remind of deliverance. And on the 15th day through the 22nd day, you remembered that God um, is holy and we are to be holy as well. And then we come to the, the feast of weeks with the feast of first fruits on the day of first fruits verse 26 when you offer a grain offering of new grain to the lord at your feast of weeks you shall have a holy convocation you shall do no ordinary work but offer a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma to the lord two bulls from the herd one ram seven male lambs a year old also their grain offerings a fine flour mixed with oil three tenths of an ephah for each bull two tenths for one ram a tenth for each of the seven lambs with one male goat to make atonement for you besides the regular burnt offering. It is a grain offering. You shall offer them and their drink offering. See that they are without blemish. Again, this now the Feast of Weeks celebrates the beginning of the wheat harvest. We call it Pentecost. Next week, by the way, is Pentecost. Jesus is called the first fruits from whom all will be made alive. And on the day of Pentecost, 2,000 years ago, Peter preached the the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and 3,000 souls came to Christ. Make no mistake, those were the first fruits of a great gospel harvest. First fruits reminds us, is a testimony, that 
the, har- the rest of the harvest will follow. In other words, the first fruits are not the entirety of the harvest. They are just the first offerings. It is a promise and a guarantee that much will follow. And when 3,000 souls were saved on the day of Pentecost, it is a testimony that this is just the first part of the harvest. There will be a great gospel harvest in the years and decades and centuries and millennium to come. This is the third yearly festival. The first one is Passover. The second is unleavened bread. And the third is the Feast of Weeks. And then we get to the seventh month in chapter 29. And the seventh month is perhaps the most joyful and the greatest of all the months in the Hebrew calendar. And it is the Feast of Trumpets on the first day of the seventh month. You shall have a holy convocation. That's basically an assembly. You will gather together. The people of God will gather together. And we see throughout chapter 28 and now in chapter 29 that God calls his people in a holy convocation. They are are to gather themselves together at God's invitation. And... You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a day for you to blow the trumpets and you shall offer a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma. The day, the first day of the seventh month is known as Rosh Hashanah. That is the new year. And so the new year begins on the first day of the seventh month. And then on the 10th day of the seventh month is the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And it is the day where the people confessed their sins and called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And the high priest offered a sacrifice, laid his hands on the sacrifice, two lambs, laid his hands on and sacrificed ones, laid his hands on the other. And it was the scapegoat who took the sins of the people outside of the camp one atone for sins and one removes sin from their midst. It is the great day of atonement. It is a day that is holy to the Lord. It is the day where the work of atonement accomplishes redemption from sins and cleanses a guilty conscience. One of the things about the Hebrew calendar and one of the things about the day of Yom Kippur is that it happened year after year after year after year after year. And Hebrew tells us that the work of Christ is once and for all. It is sufficient. We do not have a Yom Kippur because our sacrifice is Christ and his work is done and complete and it is sufficient. He is not only the atoning sacrifice, but he is the scapegoat who removes our sin outside of the camp. And then... On the 15th day of the seventh month, you will have perhaps the most joyful of all celebrations, which makes sense, doesn't it? Now that our sins are forgiven, we rejoice. That makes sense. And it is the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. So there's our text. Let me just give you a brief summary. These times and these sacrifices, these holidays, these... These rituals are given by God and the people gather at God's invitation and it is in these rituals that God communes with his people and it is in this this communion that forms the people into his likeness. So let's talk just briefly or let's apply these texts. Let's um, see how they um, are lived out in our lives. We do not live in, in an agrarian society. I don't know what it's like to raise crops and and live by a harvest calendar and yet these festivals these these rituals i think have great bearing on our lives today and i will say there are so many great applications simone and i have what we call the funnel when we prepare a message, that we have all of this information, but we can only deliver it (laughs) this amount of time. And uh, the funnel, the information is massive here. 
I'm going to give you a few. I've funneled it down. I'll give you a few, but I would encourage you to explore this text. I know you're like going, really, these are just sacrifices. I just, when I read through the Bible, I blow through that point. I would ask you maybe to pause, slow down. Because there, there, there's riches in them, our texts. The first thing we should note is that worship is formative. Worship is formative. That is, worship molds and shapes the people of God to reflect the true nature of God. Worship molds and shapes the people of God to reflect the true nature of God. It fosters an allegiance. Worship fosters an allegiance to God. It is, as we've mentioned, worship then is by God's prescription, not our own. Nadab and Abihu were slain by God for offering strange fire. We don't know all of the details about that, but the prescription for offering uh, was clear and they sought their own way and God would have none of it. It is then worship we are saying, not my will but thine be done. You are God and I will align myself with your words. And by conforming to his will in worship, we are saying your ways are right. Their worship, as we mentioned earlier, was not for the purpose of being relevant to to their surrounding culture. It was actually to be distinct from the surrounding culture to say that our God is separate. He is holy. He is other. He is not like the pagan gods that you've created out of your own imaginations. He is the living and true God and we, he is not like your gods. And so as we gather to sing and we read and we pray and we see the gospel, it is forming us. I want you to understand that as we sing songs of faith, those songs of faith form us. When we pray, we are praying and prayer is formative. When we read the scriptures, don't just kind of zone out. Listen to what God is saying because God is forming you through his word and the proclamation of his word. And even the benediction, God is forming us. He is making us to look like Him, to reflect who He is. He solidifies in our hearts our allegiance to Him. Our minds are formed to what God is like. We then view Him as He is, not as society says He is. There are many people who will tell you, this is what God is like. And when we gather and we we hear God's word read and we hear God's word prayed and we see the gospel and the elements of, of and the sacraments of baptism and communion, we see God as He is. And all of a sudden, the, the hopefully all of a sudden, but at least slowly, we will see that all the society has been telling us about God all week is not true. And now we see God again. We are reminded of who He is. Worship is formative. But worship is sacrificial. Because in worship, not only do we see God for who He is, but we see ourselves for who we are. And hence we see our true condition. In many of these sacrifices, the worshiper would place his hands upon the head of the animal. And this was a symbolizing a transfer of guilt. A transfer of guilt from me, the sinner, to an innocent substitute. I, the guilty one, the animal of the innocent one is going to bear my guilt and my sin. He dies for me. The matter of human sin and God's provision of atonement then is front and center. And it is front and center in a worship service. We have times of confession, of sin. The focus, and I think that's important, I think the focus on human sin and the need for atonement has unfortunately been lost from much of evangelical worship. 
I've heard other people say that we do not need to remind people of their sins. They already know they're sinners. No, they don't. Talk to most people and they'll say, I'm just fine. I'm a good person. I haven't done anything wrong. Nothing worthy of God's wrath. I'm not a murderer. Well, and even if I am a murderer, there are murderers worse than me. I only killed two people. Guy down the cell block killed ten. <laughs> That's a bad man. I'm not so bad. No, we don't know. We need to know that we have sinned against a holy God. And so worship is sacrificial. There is an element where we call upon the name of the Lord to forgive us. Worship is not only formative, worship is not only sacrificial, but worship is restful. And this is a point that would be we would do well to develop, and perhaps we will, in God's providence. In our call to worship today, it was, Come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I want you to note the frequency of the Sabbath in these festivals, in these sacrifices, in these times of worship. There were constant Sabbaths. Sabbaths were times of rest. That is, you shall do no work. See, all week we work. We certainly work in our vocations. We work in our jobs and we meet customers and clients and we go about our various tasks. We work in our homes. We we fix them up. We repair them. We maintain them. We do all of these things. We work and we work and we work. But that's not the only area where we work. We work in our spiritual lives as well. We work to maintain a relationship with Christ and we we work to maintain a consistent prayer life. Do you have a devotion? Does anybody have a quiet time? Yeah. Have you ever missed it? You can admit that. And we say, man, I missed it. I need to try harder. I need to work at doing this. And that's a good thing. You should. We should have times where we are meeting the needs of our neighbor where we are sharing the gospel. When I go to work today, I'm, I'm praying that I'll have an opportunity to share the gospel with my client, with my boss, with somebody. These are great things. We should do these things. But God invites us into this place to rest. And He will feed us here. Here we feast upon His provision. Worship is restful. He invites us into his house. That's an amazing thing. Come to me. Come into my house. And cease from your work and sit. And rest in the, in the gospel that will be proclaimed in the, announce, in, the, in the call to worship. That will be proclaimed in the prayers. That will be sung in the songs. That will be read from the Bible. That will be proclaimed from the pulpit. That will be seen in the sacraments. Rest and feast upon what I have for you. I have the gospel for you. And every week you need the gospel. The gospel is not the beginning of the Christian life as we often say. It is the Christian life. We do not move on from the gospel. We do not say, well, I got the gospel when I was saved. Now I'm good. Now I need the deep things of God. The gospel is the deep things of God. You don't get any deeper than Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day. Your sins are forgiven. And you are at peace with, I should say this, God is at peace with you. As Charlie would say, he is no longer coming after you. We need the gospel. And worship is a time where we come and we say, Lord, here I am. I worked all week. 
And the Lord responds with, let me feed you. I told you at the beginning of this message I was going to introduce to you a second word that might be inappropriate, that might cause some discomfort. The first one is ritual. Well, here's the second one, and it's liturgy. Again, when we use the word liturgy, we are probably thinking of the Episcopal Church or the Roman Catholic Church or some, maybe the Lutheran Church or some, some liturgical assembly. But literally, liturgy is simply the ordered contents of a corporate worship service. The ordered contents of a corporate worship service. Liturgy is the, note this, the regularly repeated and predictable order of a church's worship. I like the idea that it is repeated, regular, and predictable because I can just rest knowing that God is going to feed me a regular and steady diet. Do you note the regularity of Israel's worship calendar and the regular content of each event? Again, you know, I, I, I grew up in, in a church and just always hearing... God's going to do a new thing. God's going to do a new thing. God's going to do a new thing. This year, God's going to do a new thing. I don't know if God's going to do a new thing. What I need is not for God to do a new thing. We need God to do the old thing that he has been doing, which is reminding us and applying the gospel in our lives daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, time after time after time after time. I don't need a new thing. I need the old thing. Now, we do not have anything like the yearly harvest festivals, but we do have something that corresponds to the weekly um, Sabbath, and that is Lord's Day worship. Corporate, public corporate worship on the Lord's Day. Now, to be honest, the New Testament does not give us a precise liturgy, and certainly there is some flexibility in all of that. But somehow, by, but, but we can, by either direct command, by illustration, by implication, we can know what God has ordained. We can know those ordained components of an ordered liturgy. And we see them, like I said, either by direct command, by illustration, or by implication. And one of the things we see over and over again is a call to worship. God calls his people. I'm going to share a pet peeve. I was, I was going to share a couple of pet peeves, and I still might, but here's my pet peeve. And I've been guilty of this, so I'm speaking to myself, is when the pastor or somebody, elder or prayer, gets up and they, their opening prayer is, Lord, we invite you into our presence. I think they're, I'm not here to condemn, that person's not like they're a heretic or something. I just think it's imprecise. Because actually, it is not us inviting God into his place. God is inviting us to join him and commune with him. It's a totally different thing. God is inviting you to commune with him. Why would we stay home? Why would we go to the lake instead? Why would we not prioritize the invitation of God to come into his house and feast at his table. That makes zero sense to me. God has invited us to worship. We also know that we are to sing. And we are not just to sing any song. We are to sing our faith. We, we do our best, maybe not always perfectly, but we do our best to sing our faith. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. It's a reminder of this is a we as a church are proclaiming our faith to one another. This is why in your bulletin it says congregational singing. Because the, the congregational 
lifts up its voice and we sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and we make melody in our hearts and it overflows and we encourage our brothers and sisters as we sing out loud. We sing our faith. We sing our faith. Stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. We are announcing what we believe. We are singing it because it is joyful. The Bible tells us to sing and to share our, and to sing our faith. We offer up certain prayers. Throughout the Bible, there's all kinds of prayers. We pray to exalt and to extol the name of God. We pray to ask God to forgive us. We pray that God, that we are certain of God's forgiveness. We pray for others. We intercede on behalf of others. There are all kinds of prayers, and we are to pray as we gather together. God invites us into his, to commune with him and offer up prayers. We are to observe the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And we often say, this is the gospel scene. So we, we pray the gospel and we sing the gospel and we preach the gospel and we see the gospel. In baptism, we see the sign. It points to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that I am uniting with him in his death and burial and resurrection and that the waters of God's wrath have flooded over me, but I am raised up out of them by faith in Christ. It is a sign of that miraculous event and it is a seal that unites us and binds us to one another and binds us to Christ. And as we, in a few moments, will celebrate the Lord's table, also the bread and the cup, Remind us and point to the death, the, the cost of our, of our forgiveness. We read and we proclaim God's word and we have a benediction. That is, we bless one another as we go. See, every church has a liturgy. There's not a church in the world that doesn't have a liturgy. My question is, has it been thought through? Is it intentional? I don't think that our liturgy is um, magic or that it, we are to hold it with such a firm grip that we would be legalistic, that if you do not hold our liturgy, that you are maybe a second-level church. I don't think that at all. But it has been thought through. But we begin with a call to worship, God's invitation. We then go on into God is the center of all that we do. We, begin, we, we start with adoration. We praise God. And then seeing God for who he truly is, we see ourselves for who we truly are and we need to confess our sins. Let's cleanse our, our, the stain that has accumulated through the week and call upon God. And then we spend time with an assurance of forgiveness. We end in thanksgiving and then finally we end in a blessing. There's a logical order to it. it is, it's been thought through, that's all. Can somebody else do something different? Yeah, Again, I, I grew up in a church and the idea was there's the sermon and there's everything in front of the sermon. And, and the songs all just lead to and point to the sermon. And the sermon's really the main event. Everything else is preliminaries. And I just don't think that's true. I think there are no preliminaries. It's all, the gospel is infused in all of these things. So anyways, so the arrangement of the service Convey, should convey a gospel order. It should impress upon us the fundamental truths of life. Worship then becomes the engine of the Christian life that impresses upon our souls the deep meaning of our faith. So every Lord's Day, that sacred ground is covered once again. The gospel and our embrace of it are recapitulated and our lives are recentered in the covenant. So we embrace the Lord more in a way rendered so much more powerful and meaningful because we do not 
We do so not only as individuals, but we do so with one another in the communion of the saints because the Lord's presence is promised and brought near when God's people are gathered in his name. And so we, folks, tomorrow we're going to re-enter the world. But we here, I pray, will re-enter the world having our minds cleared and our spiritual senses animated. We know again that we are God's creatures, that he made us and not we ourselves that Christ has redeemed us by his blood and we are soon to be in a world where everlasting joy rests upon everybody's head. And we know and we feel that our lives are not our own, that we have been bought with a price and that it is our sacred calling and highest privilege to love others as we have been loved. In other words, a Christian's very identity, his understanding of himself and the meaning of his life as a forgiven sinner, an heir of everlasting life, a child of God, a servant, and soldier of the King of Kings is affirmed every well in every well-ordered service. And the accumulated weight of such worship renders that explicitly Christian self-consciousness powerful against the assaults of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are equipped because we've been fed and we have rested. I'm rejuvenated, renewed. And so let me conclude with this. So much of today's popular worship is centered around the individual and his or her felt needs. But our greatest need, our greatest need is not five keys to a happy marriage or three keys to a vibrant prayer life or 12 keys to be a better employee or employer. Our greatest need is to find ourselves in the presence of the living God, to be renewed in faith and hope and love as we commune with this God. The Lord has given the Lord's Day worship as the principal means by which that renewal occurs. So, we have heard God's word. We have sung God's truth. We have prayed gospel prayers. So now let us seal this day with the visible means of his grace in the table of the Lord. So if you are a follower of Christ, if you have repented and called upon the name of the Lord and you are a child of the living God, we would welcome you in to, to participate at the table.